Eric Whitaker didn't have much formal music training, but on a whim, as a college freshman, he decides to join a choir. His first day, the choir director says, we're going to begin with the, the Kyrie from the Requiem by Mozart. Now, Eric admits he didn't understand any of the words that were just said. He doesn't know what a Requiem is. He doesn't know what language Kyrie is from. So he glances over the shoulder at the guy next to him and turns to page 10. And, and the Requiem begins with the, the bass players. And he, and, and he says, he says, I'll never forget that moment, that first breath. Because within about 25 or 30 seconds, I found myself standing in the midst of this cosmic Swiss watch as the voices of the, the altos, then the sopranos, then the tenors joined. He says he, he found a level of complexity and humanity that he couldn't have even imagined existed before that moment. Eric left that day entirely transformed. He, he called himself, walking out of the room, the world's biggest choir geek. And now Eric Whitaker has become an influential composer. But his biggest choral project began with a really small idea. He had written a piece that was being performed by a few uh, ensembles, but, but, a, but a young woman got a, a piece of it and sent him a fan video. A, a friend of his pointed him to it on Facebook. She took one of his pieces and she just sang in her simple and sweet voice one line from it, or one, one, just, just her part from this, this larger ensemble. And it was beautiful. It was just a tribute, a thanks to him. But, but as he watches this soloist, he thinks, you know, if I could get 25 other people doing what she's doing, singing by themselves in their living rooms, well then, as long as they're singing in the same key and at the same tempo, then I could combine all the parts and, and form a choir. A choir that's not even in the room together, a virtual choir. And so Eric puts together a, uh, an instrumental track to keep everybody on key, to keep them from getting too pitchy. And he ups, uploads a video of himself conducting the piece. And he asks a few friends to kind of spread the word. And he thinks, you know, if he can get 25 people, this would be great. Kind of a, a neat, exciting project for him. We said that that first video had 185 different vocalists from more than 12 countries combined into one musical piece, a, a virtual choir. His, his most recent piece, 8,000 voices, now performed in, in giant ensembles and auditoriums with, with an interactive multimedia display to go with it. But this is how Eric describes the choir. He says, there really was just this tribe with a common goal and a common love, which is to come together to make something larger than themselves. A common goal, a common love to make something larger than themselves. Now, I think that describes our own inclinations, our own attitudes, our own longings to be part of something bigger than ourselves. I mean, that's not merely a description of this virtual choir, but an explanation of our lives that we are meant to be, bigger, be part of something bigger than just ourselves, to be part of something significant. Each of us longs for that. And maybe it's not a virtual choir that you're longing for. Although if you're looking for a choir experience, then join our choir on Wednesday nights as they're already beginning to, to prepare for our Christmas concert. Join them upstairs Wednesday nights. You can talk to me after worship or, or Dr. Jardinier or, or Christopher, our organist accompanist, and, 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 and get that experience of being part of something bigger. But, but what I want us to see is, is each of us deep inside has a longing for that. 
for our lives to have meaning and significance. But, but we want this longing to have an eternal purpose. And so this idea that we can, we can create meaning just with other people around us, with relationships, that actually kind of confronts a, another assumption that I think many of us hold. Okay, we, we have this idea that, yes, I need to be part of something bigger with other people around us, but we also culturally have this idea that, you know what, I don't need anybody else for my life to have meaning. I don't need you to tell me how my life can have purpose. I can be whoever I want to be. See, we're, we're tempted to live as if I don't need anyone else. I don't need someone bigger, something bigger to make sense of my own life. I can do that for myself. The cultural message we hear as described by another pastor, is don't try to get affirmation from others. Affirm yourself. Affirm yourself because you're doing what you want to do. And so how do we even make sense of this tension of finding meaning in relationship with others, of, but yet creating our own meaning? How can we find a purpose in life? Right, now, rather than stay at the merely theoretical or philosophical level, because while I'm not a choir geek, I could probably be described as a philosophy geek. So I would be okay if we just talk in philosophical terms. But I want us to be practical this morning. And so that's why you have your Bibles open to Galatians 2. I'm, I'm, I'm turning us to this very practical passage for us to wrestle with these big theoretical questions in a concrete way. I want God to apply His Word to us. Because when we turn to Galatians 2, we find an apostolic mess. You have the Apostle Peter, who we know as the, the writer of much of the New Testament, the, the great theologian of the church, the missionary who is going to take the gospel to the nations. In confrontation, in an argument, in a throwdown, face-to-face, all-out theological brawl with Peter. Peter, the pillar of the church. Peter, the preacher at Pentecost, who comes with the power of God's message. And so here in this mess, we find a confrontation, not merely over personality or, or preferences, but over the gospel itself, because Peter is tempted to step away from the truth of the gospel, that we find our hope in Jesus Christ alone, and he's tempted to find meaning in what other people tell him he should be doing. He's tempted to find meaning in the religious observance that, that, that have been created, and so what I, what I want us to do is, as I, as I read, I, I want you to begin to, to wrestle. And then what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this, this, this conflict to see where can we find real, lasting, practical, concrete, foundational meaning for our lives. All right, so we're in the midst of a conflict between these two great apostles. I'm going to begin reading in Galatians chapter 2. If you already closed your Bible, turn it back open to 1151. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2 at verse 4. Galatians 2, verse 4. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, Whatever they were makes no difference to, to me. God does not judge by external appearances. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, 
who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it then that you can force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. All right, so you see the conflict between Peter and Paul. And what I want us to do is, is sort of dig into this conflict a little bit so that we can first identify the, the, the wrong places in which we can be tempted to find meaning and significance. Or before we turn to both the, the practical value of finding significance in Christ and the true hope that that offers us. First, consider with me some of the wrong places we could find meaning. Ways that we would try and make sense of our lives that are, that are themselves too fragile to sustain meaning through any difficulties in life. I mean, look at the, the contrast, the way that both Paul and Peter are tempted to put their trust or find meaning in other people, to find significance in what somebody else says about me. First, look at how, how, Peter descri- or how, how Paul describes his situation in verse 6. He says, as for those who seemed to be important. They seemed to be important, but they're, they're mere men. Whatever they were, he says in verse 6, makes no difference to me because God does not judge by external appearance. Paul is acknowledging the fact that, yes, you and I can find meaning, significance, purpose when we go to somebody else for his or her opinion. But he says that's, that's merely the, the appearance of importance. But then in contrast, so Paul is, is not willing to place his trust in what others think of him. We see that Peter does this very thing. Look at verse 12. When certain men came from James, when certain men come from Jerusalem, then Peter changes the way he acts. Why? Because of their impressions of him, because of their, the way that, that they might view him. All right, now we need a little bit of context for the argument, because thankfully the argument that they're having here is an argument that they solve in this book. So the book of Galatians answers the question for us of, do you need to become a Jew in order to be a Christian? Because think of it, Jesus arrived, the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of David, the one who kept the law perfectly. And so do you, if you've put your trust in Jesus, 
do you need to be a Jew in order to become a Christian? That's a question that Gentiles, and that's just a word that means everybody who isn't a Jew, the rest of us, do you have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian? Now, Peter himself was given a a vision by God to make clear, no, it's not by keeping the Old Testament laws, the the, the food regulations, and it's certainly not by, by all the rules and customs that have been added to it, like don't go near a sinner in case you get tainted by his or her sin. I mean, the first were commands given by God about what you should and should not eat, where you should go and when you should worship. The others were rules added on. But, but Peter was given a vision by God that, that, no, Peter, you can eat anything. It's permissible for you to go into the home of a Gentile and share a meal. You will not be defiled because you have been forgiven and and found freedom in Christ. And so that's how Peter has been living and teaching. That's the true message. But what happened? Some influential men who have come from Jerusalem, from the other pillars of the church, from James, come and they they say, no, 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 we we can't act this way. We can't be involved in 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 the, the way that you're trying to do ministry here. And so Peter begins to revert to his old ways for fear of what they will think of him. And yes, you and I are unlikely to be confused any longer by this question of, do I need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Thankfully, the letter to the Romans, and particularly this letter to the Galatians, answers that question decisively for us. No, Gentiles are welcomed directly to Christ through his death and resurrection. And so we don't wrestle with that question but we very much face the same problem, the temptation to, to find our meaning and value in what other people think of us, to be afraid of, of how people will respond if we say something out loud or we act a certain way. We're tempted to think, if, if only I was part of this group, well, then I would really feel like I belonged. Then I would feel like my life had purpose. Students, you know the, the, the struggle of walking into a, a new classroom and, and thinking, I don't even know where I'm supposed to sit. Or, or worse, walking into a, a cafeteria and thinking, where do I fit? Where do I belong? And adults, you and I know that same feeling. We might just try and avoid those situations altogether and, and simply eat at our own desks so that we don't ever have to, to, to wrestle with that kind of, that kind of struggle. But we all know the, the temptation to think, if, if only she notices me, then I'll have some significance. If only my marriage was stronger, if only he treated me better, then, then things would, 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 be, would, be, would be great. Because we're tempted to find our value and significance in the way that other people respond to us. As if they are the ones who seem to be important. And, and you see the danger then is that you're, you're just going based on your own judgment of the, of the facts in front of you for that day. Or worse, you know that, that somebody who, who approves of you today may have a different opinion of you tomorrow. Or we don't even have to wait until tomorrow to find the, the problem. You can have multiple opinions about you from different people that you think are really important. And so how do you, how do you keep them all happy? Well, some of you have gotten pretty good at this. You just juggle lots of plates and try and keep them all spinning and try and keep each person happy. But it's an exhausting way to live, to try and find your, your source of validation in other people around you. Because neither the external validation of other people who seem important, nor even that, that internal monologue that says, no, no, I don't even need them. I can do this myself. Like a toddler in, in defiance of, of any help. 
I, I can make my own meaning. You and I realize that that, that can't sustain us. The opinions of others aren't enough. Because what's important to them today, what's important to me today, could be very different tomorrow. And so any stable sense of self needs an external validation, but not from people who, see, who merely seem to be important. Now maybe then the solution is, is not just in what other people think or what I myself think, but maybe, maybe I can find a structure, a system, a religious way to live. And that's what some of the, the Jews, particularly this, this, uh, this group of the, the, the circumcision group or the Judaizers or those that, are, that think we can make ourselves right with God, if you just show up and, and do all of these things, if you keep these certain commandments, then, then your life will have meaning. You'll be identified religiously with a certain group, so you'll, you'll feel like you belong. You'll be able, you, you, it seems, to piece life together and so that you feel like you, you can make yourself right with God. But notice what, what Paul does when, when, when Peter is tempted to slip back into mere religious observance. Because, yes, religious observance can make your life outwardly appear more orderly and more put together. But you haven't actually dealt with the problem of where you find value and significance. And the reason that this issue is such an important one, this debate between Peter and Paul, the reason we can't minimize it is that it is, it, they are asking a central question. How can anyone be saved? How can anyone be made right with God? Is it by my religious observance? Or is it sh- uh, sh- uh, merely by God's grace and only by God's mercy that I'm made right with God? See, P- Paul's opposition to Peter is because Peter is undermining the very message of the gospel. That rules and regulations, yes, might help keep your, clean up your life a little bit, but they won't deal with the fundamental problems. Rules and regulations can't sustain a connection to others unless they're connected. These rules, this way of living is connected to a deeper truth. Because you'll always be at the, at the, the, the whim of, of what other people think of you. You'll always base your value on your own mood. And so on a day when you feel pretty happy, you're, you feel pretty secure. But on a day when, you, when you're plunged to the depths of sorrow, you feel like there is no hope. And so we can't find our meaning merely in what other people say about us. We can't well it up within ourselves. We can't find it in outward religious observance. But it's not enough for, for us to use this passage merely to expose the weakness in the ways we're tempted to live. Walking in and identifying the problem is only helpful if there's an actual solution. I mean, sometimes some of us think that, that problem identification is a spiritual gift, that we can walk in and say, well, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and well, that's definitely wrong. And then we walk out as if we've accomplished something productive. And so if the sermon ended here, well, you'd get home and be eating lunch sooner, but you would be left without any meaningful hope. Because it's not enough for us to tear down the the false ways in which we try to build meaning in our lives. We need, to, we need to find where can we get real hope, real meaning. And, and Paul is clear in this passage. Our only hope, our only source of meaning, our only way to find validation is through Jesus Christ. Now, that's not a 
entirely profound thing at one level because you think, well, of, of course, pastor, you were going to talk about Jesus. I mean, his name is repeated throughout what you just read. But, but think of what Paul is saying. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. And this is the only way in which you can find a, a, an external validation that, that comes from someone not merely of seeming importance, but someone of absolute importance, God himself. It's the only way that, that transformation can take place within you so that your understanding of that purpose and meaning is rooted in the truth of who God is. And so let's look at how, how Paul points us to this gospel hope. First, notice the, the contrast he sets in that first verse that I read, verse 4, between the false brothers. And, the, and notice the, 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 the sinister language he uses to describe their actions. They have infiltrated our ranks in order to spy on us. Why? What do they want to see? Look at verse 4. The freedom we have in Christ Jesus. Paul is announcing that there is true freedom. Freedom from fear of what others say. That's, he'll, he'll, he'll immediately turn to that idea of, of God doesn't judge by external appearance. I don't care what they say. I only care about God's opinion. Freedom from the fear of what others will say, but freedom from the, the guilt of sin. Freedom from the, the fear that, that my life is without hope or without meaning. We have real freedom in Christ Jesus. Because it's only in Jesus that we can find the satisfaction that we really need. So that longing of the virtual choir to be part of something bigger than ourselves, that's built into who we are. We are creatures made in God's image who need to find our meaning in someone else, in something bigger than ourselves. And so that longing is, is, not, a, is not a wrong longing. It's just that we, we chase after false desires or, or false solutions to that true desire. But, but do you see, when you find your hope in Jesus, then you have someone who's not merely, who has not just the, the appearance of importance, but someone who has absolute importance. Jesus, the King of the universe, the God of all creation, looks at you and finds you valuable. And the reason we always turn to other people for, for validation is, is we are desperate for an external source of meaning in our lives. The problem is everywhere else, everyone else to whom you turn, even in the best of relationships, the love of a, of a mother for her child, the love of a, of a husband for his wife, even in the best of relationships, that person is in the same place that you are, broken, a sinner, a rebel against God. And so their validation of you may not be accurate. It may be distorted, but you want to find an accurate representation. You want to find one to whom you can give everything and not be disappointed. Then go and find your validation and your significance, your freedom in God alone. Because Jesus offers us the true source of external validation, and then by the transforming work that he does in our lives, matches our internal motivation, our internal sense of who we are with what he says about us. He is the one who has set us free from slavery to sin, from our slavery to selfishness. And at the end of what I read, he, Paul uses a, a, a big word, justified. He talks about justification, which is an important theological concept. And so it's worth us, in order to understand the message of the Bible, this is one of those big theological words that actually needs to be defined. We can't just kind of skip it over and say, well, we'll leave that for another day. We'll, we'll wait until, until we get to deeper levels of theology. No, even though it's a big concept, it's an it's important one for us to understand. And so look again at verse 
16, where he says that we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So he's setting the contrast between, can I do enough good stuff, keep the commands of God in order to justify myself, or can I be justified only by Jesus? And so it's important that we understand what justification is so that we can see the contrast that's been set. Justification is a, is, is a legal term. Paul has set us in God's grand courtroom where all of your sins have been laid out in evidence against you. And all that's left is for the, the gavel to come down announcing your, your guilt and your condemnation, your punishment for your sins. But what has God done? He has justified you. He has declared you as if you were innocent. You have been acquitted and cleared of all charges. You have gained legal immunity because the the, the gavel of God's judgment fell on Jesus Christ. He who was perfect and innocent bore our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins in his death on the cross. That's the hope of justification. See, the reason you can go to Jesus and throw yourself on him Asking him to give you meaning and significance is you know how much he loves you. He is the one who has proven uh, uh, from a position of absolute value and worth as the creator of the universe, as God himself came down and died in your place on the cross. And so you know that he will not use you. He will not take from you only for his own good. He is the one who has sacrificed himself in your place. And so a welcome from him A welcome from Jesus offers a true external source of meaning and purpose. You have been justified. And how? It's through your faith in Christ. Verse 16 continues that that we we are justified not by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. As verse 16 continues, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So you can either try and justify yourself in the courtroom, stand at the moment before the gavel falls and say, but wait, 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 wait. You've only heard the really bad stuff that I've done. Let me list a few of the nicer things that I've done. As if you can, can wipe away all of the sin and hatred and evil that's within you with a, with a couple of kind things that you once thought about saying. Or maybe even when you lay out the best of your life but done through selfish motives. So your your only hope is to justify yourself or to find your justification, your acquittal in Jesus. And how do you gain that? Not by any wisdom on your own, but by faith. And what is faith? Faith is a throwing yourself on Jesus Christ alone. It's trusting in him. It's, It's fully submitting to his authority and power. Faith is a total surrender to Jesus Christ. It's saying, I, I can't do this on my own. My attempts to create meaning and significance for my life have harmed me and others, and so I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so instead of looking to others, other sinners, for a source of significance, you look to the Savior for your value. And then I want us, in, in just the remaining minutes we have, to look at the, the way in which this value, this meaning, this significance that's found in Christ can then change the way that we live. 
Because if meaning is built on the validation of others, then you will always fear what others think of you. But if your meaning, if your value, if your significance is found in Christ alone, then you are free to lovingly confront error. See, because think of it, if Peter, or if Paul, when he sees this error that's being taught, but thinks, wait, but it's, but it's James, it's John, it's Peter who have validated my ministry, I'm going to need their endorsement as I travel from city to city. Fundraising will not happen without their help. And you know what? They've been Christians longer than I. When I was persecuting Christ, they were preaching the gospel. And so if Paul was, was finding his source of meaning and significance in what other people thought of him, he would just have folded under the pressure and said, I guess they must be right. But what does he do? Look at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Paul's value and meaning comes from Christ. And so when the gospel of Jesus Christ is under threat, Paul will be willing to stand and confront error. Now, now I, I do want us to notice here that this isn't, this isn't a blanket uh, permission for us to just start going and yelling at people. Now, when the gospel is at, at, at risk, when the very message of salvation by grace is, then it means you and I do have to confront people. But just going and telling people that they're wrong is generally not a helpful way to go through life. I'm not telling you that you should be, you should be pressing your political perspectives or your, your, your educational goals or, or any of those things. But when the gospel is at issue, you should be willing to confront error with truth. And it might, it might seem obvious that, that Peter had to do this to Paul's face. I mean, it's not as if he could pick up the telephone or, or send him a, a, an instant message. But I do think there's value there for us. If you have to have a hard gospel conversation with someone, then you should do it face to face. Because face to face with Peter, he sees the value and the dignity that God has given to Peter. He remembers the significant service that Peter has given to the church, and so he confronts him, not out of, not out of a selfish desire to be proven right, but out of a loving desire to correct Peter, so that the gospel that's taken to the Jews will be the true gospel message of salvation that comes through faith in Christ alone. And Paul is saying in verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I confronted Peter in front of them all. Our lives are meant to match the truth of God's message. Not merely go the, according to the whims of, of what people think about us. Because their opinions will quickly change. But if we are resting in God, then we have a, a significance, we have a freedom to lovingly confront error. But it also means that we have, if our meaning comes from God, who has shown unconditional love to us, then we can show love to others. I mean, notice the, the way in which, and this is a small detail in verse 10, and so we might, might, might just skip right past it. But in verse 10, when, when, Peter, when Paul is sent as a missionary to the Gentiles, as the apostle to the nations, he's told to remember the poor. Now, we could have lots of motives for helping people that are poor. We could do it so that other people would notice we've helped people that are worse off than we are. And look, I mean, look at how generous I have been. Look at how sacrificial I have been with my time. Because if my motive is to get other people to think more highly of me, well, that's not going to last very long because 
when it gets really hard and people aren't paying as close of attention as I think they should, well, then I'll probably stop helping. But if your value, if your significance comes from without, if it comes from God, then you can genuinely be involved in a fight for justice, helping those who are, who are weak and marginalized. You can, you can genuinely give yourself to serving the poor. And for Paul, it wasn't merely individual actions in his life that, were val- that, that, that his validation from God transformed. It was his very life. Over and over again, as he describes the work that he is doing as the apostle to the Gentiles, he keeps giving credit to God. In verse 7, he said that, that even those that were opposing me saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel. He had been given this task by God himself. In verse 8, in, in, the, in explaining that Peter was given the work of a ministry as an apostle to the Jews, he says, God was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. See, if your validation and significance come from God, then your purpose in life comes from God. And it means everything you do is a gift from God for His glory. It means as a church, we have the mission of preaching the gospel. It's not merely if you stand behind a pulpit that you have the mission of preaching the gospel. If you call yourself a Christian, then you have the mission of preaching the gospel to friends and neighbors who need to hear this because God is the God who is at work among the nations, who appointed Paul to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, a work that's still happening today. And so there's value in the work that we do, not merely from the ways in which other people tell us it's valuable, whether with a paycheck or an attaboy, it's valuable because it's work in God's world for God's glory. There's value in our gospel witness. So we have been given Value, purpose, identity through the death of Jesus Christ. He died in our place that we might be justified. He rose from the the dead so that that justification could be ours to prove God's power over sin and death. And so we can find our value in the truth of the gospel, in Jesus Christ himself. We come to him by faith, trusting in him. He has justified us, declared us to be innocent, even though we had been sinners. He's called us into his mission to serve the weak, to announce good news. See, our meaning, our value, our significance don't come merely from a virtual conductor splicing our voices together with others. Our value and significance comes from God himself, the God who orchestrates our lives, the God who controls the universe, Jesus himself who gave his life for us. So God offers us an eternal purpose. We can live our lives in line with the truth of the gospel because we have a freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. Freedom from the fear of what others think. Freedom from our foolish self-attempts to make ourselves look okay. We have the freedom of the gospel, freedom in Jesus Christ because we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, the questions we ask are are big, and sometimes, Lord, it would feel easier, it would seem easier to just skip right past them, to just go on with the the day-to-day and ignore the, the challenging questions that we confront. But yet, Lord, I pray that you would not give us a a comfort 
if we try and find it apart from you. That we would not be able to, to find satisfaction in the things of this world because we need to find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. And so, Lord, let us see that the, the meaning, the purpose, the value that we long for is given to you, given to us by you. Lord, let us see the, the great cost to Jesus to provide us with the, the freedom from our sins. Lord, we rejoice that he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sins, that you raised him from the dead, proving his power over sin and death. And so we come to Jesus by faith, trusting in him alone. We pray in his name. Amen.